Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Center Court is presented by the Winner's Circle Network in conjunction with the Sampson Family Foundation, striving to uplift, empower, and educate the communities we live in. Now here's Ralph and your host, Mac McDonald. Welcome into the Winner's Circle Network, and now we're getting closer. It's uh, Center Court with Ralph Sampson. We're getting closer. That calendar, <laughs> it turned over. You know, we're into March, and March Madness, ACC tournament. Uh, Ralph, I saw today they're, they're going to allow, I guess, families. They're not going to allow fans uh, for the ACC tournament. And then we get ready for the NCAA, which I have several questions for you. So, anyway, um, I guess going to the ACC tournament is out, huh? Yeah, well, you know, we were, we were talking about that for a couple of weeks, right? Mm-hmm. And so I figured, okay, how many people they let in the stands or not? And that's a smart move. This to let some family people in. But as you know, Mac, families also can be rambunctious. And like, we want to do this, we want to do that. Hopefully they will all follow the rules, you know, to bring no COVID in because they, they've been all over the place too. Who knows, whatever. But they'll limit it, I'm sure, to only immediate family, not cousins and aunts and all that kind of stuff as well that can come in there and see these players play and be safe and sit them, you know, distance apart, which I'm sure will be the case. But, you know, you're talking about ACC tournament, man. You're talking about team after team after team, people coming and going from the doors, in and out, whatever. That's going to be a nightmare, I think, to handle. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. All right, well, the NCAA tournament, which is, is kind of fun, and everybody plays the game. And as of right now, it looks like the ACC will get Florida State, Virginia, Virginia Tech, Louisville, and they've and and one source today had Clemson as a projected seven seed, and that Clemson is in now. Uh, Clemson's got four wins against Quad One. If you follow all that uh, all that stuff, yep, yep. now your tiebreaker. If if the ACC gets six, you know where I'm going with this. Tobacco mm-hmm. Road. Do you take Duke or Carolina, or do you just go ahead and take both? Okay, Virginia was, was number seven. Right. Now they're number 15. Right. One point lost to Duke, lost to NC State on a downward turn, which has really not ever happened in Tony Bennett's career. Yeah, at not the, this late. Right? Yeah, right. This late in the game where you have a skill like that. So I don't know if they were highly ranked in my mind in the first place, but they got a great character care, and Tony Bennett is awesome, right? <clears throat> so they got to pick up the pace the next couple of games to make sure they solidify their spot, you know, and get a better seat. And they were in the top 16 a week ago. Right. You know, they're able to get a good spot in the tournament. Now, I don't know where they're going to come up with that at this point now, but everything always, that last stretch of the seedings always goes to Duke Carolina, right? Yeah, Tuesday, and I'll I'll tell you this, Tuesday, Virginia was a projected three. Yes, yes. Three seed. And now I I bet you they, depending on how they finish, but I bet you they're a five. 
Yeah, they're gonna drop. I think they're gonna drop a few. I, I, yeah. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. Well, but, okay, Duke yeah. Carolina. We got Duke, Car- Duke, Duke Carolina. I hope neither one gets in. <laughs> but but I gotta be politically <laughs> politically correct that you know Kashethi might pull some strings to get in, and and the string and Roy might as well. Uh, but you know whoever wins that game, you know it's probably gonna get in. Yeah, it's probably gonna get in. It's gonna come down to who wins that game. Now, see, well, that that sets a tone for that game. Carolina, at the time of this recording, prior to the weekend, okay, Carolina, 14 and 8, 8 and 5. Carolina is only 1 and 6 against quad one. And Duke, at least, is 2 and 3 against <laughs> quad one. If that, but Duke is only 11 and 8, Carolina, 14 and 8. And that's why, that's why Roy wanted to get games. That's why he yep. wanted Marquette. Northeast, you know, he wanted to try to to steal a couple, you know, V's. So anyway, well, Ralph, your top four as of right now, Zags, Baylor, Michigan, Ohio State, top four seeds. I have no problem with those four. I mean, Gonzaga got no problem with none of that. I mean, undefeated, whatever. I don't have any problem with any one of those as well. But, you know, when you do analysis of the top 64 teams or whatever you pick in the NCAA tournament. It's very hard this year to do that because strength, you know, we go on strength of schedule. Right. You can't, you can't even put that into an umbrella and figure out what to come out with, right? You can't, you can't do that. Well, because, because of COVID, there's so many yes. inconsistencies. Yeah. So many inconsistencies. And right. even, even in your league, ACC league, you had some games that you should have played, could have played within your league that you might not have played. You might've won, you might not have won, but things change so fast that the teams I don't think can keep up. Then you don't practice for weeks at a time if you have some cases of COVID as well, right? So your whole game is thrown off. So it's going to be interesting to see the selection committee and what they do and how they see these teams because there's not going to be any way, shape, or form like it used to be, mm-hmm. right, in the years past. So I'm going to say, oh, we didn't get in. Why didn't we get in? And that team didn't get in and got in. Why did they get in? Why, why, did it, why can a Duke get in compared to, you know, a Clemson or somebody else like that, that, that maybe had a better season. <laughs> He's the commissioner, Ralph Sampson. Uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's the Winner's Circle Network with Ralph. A uh, couple of great guests coming up right around the corner. We'll go to break and we'll come back right after this. Hang in. The mission for the Sampson Family Foundation is simple. We strive to uplift, empower, and educate the communities we live in. The foundation promotes charitable and community input, educational development, health and fitness, and scholarship opportunities. The Samson Family Foundation's initiatives focus on patients with cancer, educational scholarship programs, and give students guidance in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The Samson Family Foundation encourages limitless possibilities. Your financial support is tax deductible. To learn more, call 540-615-5097. The website is samsonfamilyfoundation.org uplift empower educate it takes teamwork to make the dream work you're listening to center court with hall of fame basketball player ralph sampson once again here's ralph and mac Welcome into the Winner's Circle Network and Center Court with Ralph Sampson. I'm Mac McDonald. Two really great guests today. And Ralph, I'm going to let you do the honors and the introductions. Well, thanks, Mac. It's uh, great to be here. But 
you know, this, this all happened about what maybe a month ago where me and Mr. Charles Witchfield, uh, the diversity director at uh, Lowe's, but a good friend of mine since he was quite, what, 10, 15 years old, somewhere in that range. And, uh, and he left-handed can play a little bit of basketball, which was great. And uh, so he grew up, uh, you know, over that over the years. But he texted me like at five o'clock one morning, you know, and I'm like texting. What I was having to be up as well. We text back and forth. And I told him what I was doing. He told me what he was doing. We hooked up. And now here we are a number of weeks later with this special guest, Mr. Mike Phillips. Me and Mike, and we, we, we crossed paths a number of times. The last time I think I saw you was up in Philadelphia. We did that 76 Capital thing. And you yeah. were like in the lobby of the hotel just turning it out as well. So it's a good honor to have both of you guys here talking about music, but how music relates to sports. We see all the guys now listening to the earphones when they play. I mean, see, you can remember that year. We, we couldn't do that with Bill Fitch and the crew years ago. You couldn't come out with no earphones on and pre-warm practice. So you know that. You go way back. So you understand that. So introducing CC's Charles Whitfield, Mike Phelps. So, see, what do you think about guys listening to music today on the court before the game? You know what? It's a different generation. Um, even when I played, we couldn't do that. But now you see it, and it's part of, it's part of their pregame. Every pregame that you see, the guys are listening to music. And it's the same not only in basketball, but you see it in football. You know, you see it in, in baseball. When guys are out, they, they got headphones on. And it's just the new generation of what it is, even to the point where you see different things online with the different playlists of what they're even listening to pregame. So yeah, Mike, Mike, what's your playlist? I mean, I mean, if I'm, I'm listening to jazz going on. You mentioned since I got the beat zone. I got the yeah. headphones on. I got something already. So I thought it was more of a promotional type thing as well. But, you know, when I played, so my, my before the game music was a little bit of jazz, you know, kind of calm myself down. And then when I got in the locker room, a little bit of hip hop. And then I got into DC trouble funk and stuff like that. See, so you understand <laughs> that game, game ready. So I had a whole playlist going in, but we had, we had CD, we had the cassette players. We didn't have any. You know, beats and all. We had we had cassette players ready to carry the box, Careful. right? You're dating yourself. I'm dating myself a little bit. This wasn't okay. eight track tape. It wasn't eight track tape. So, so Mike, what would be your, your your playlist when you when you think about your music and the athlete and the music? I know it's from Wayman Tisdale days to all or whatever. I mean, yes. what would you want an athlete to hear in your music to play to pump them up for the game? Well, well, you know what? So, I think play playlists should be about what you're trying to accomplish on the other side of the music. For instance, if I'm at a show and I see somebody performing and I know I need to take their lunch money, and if I'm up next, then I'm going to be playing some Luda Move, Get Out the Way. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be playing some Annie Up, Slam by Onyx. You know, there's certain songs that when you listen to them, after you finish listening to them, the next thing you're going to do is take somebody lunch money. <laughs> a little bit, little bit of biggie. You know, so now if I'm chilling and it's like a smooth scenario, I'm going to um, listen to Let It Flow, like um, the song that um, Grover wrote for Dr. J. It's going to yeah. be a little bit smoother. So if whatever you want to accomplish on the other side of the music the playlist should seamlessly get you to that space. Huh. Yeah, that's not too bad. So that space, and I, you mentioned Grover and, and Julius, which is brought me back that uh, remember that those days with that as well. But you, you're talking about taking somebody's lunch money. 
So you were the bully in high school or something. You're taking people lunch money, right? Nah, I was just the dude that was quiet. But if you mess with me, I'll take the money. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to start nothing. But, but in the music realm, you know, there's a mentality. Like, there's certain competitors that have it where when I finish playing, I want the stage on fire. And the only way another band is going to come on if they get a fire extinguisher and they you know, do what they got to do and chill for a minute. And it's a never lose attitude that allows me to be the best that I can be on stage. Now, even off stage, because um, put it this way, um, I never want to be in a position where I use my gift as a crutch for being unprepared. Wow. I like that. Meaning. Meaning, Say that again, Mike. Meaning, meaning yeah, I, I never want to be in a position where I'm using my God-given gift as a crutch for being unprepared. So then now, off, off stage, I got to be practicing. I put in an hour and a half. I played today for an hour. I woke up at six and was practicing through headphones because the journey shouldn't stop with how many people watch you, but how hard you want to do to make sure you do things in repetition to have you grow as a musician. Wow. Mike, what was about, what was it about the saxophone? What age did you pick it up? And what was it about the saxophone that attracted you? Oh man. Well, first of all, I thought the saxophone was a trombone. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> so everybody would be the first on the line, you know, because the trombone players would be in the front of the line because they would hit people with the slide in the back of the head if they were in the middle. So I had this grand scheme. You know, I had a couple of girls that knew that I knew I could get their attention. So if I was marching on the parade on 4th Ave, that means they would see me marching the front of the line with the band uniform on that I could wink my eyes. Like, <laughs> so I actually get the saxophone and I'm like, no. I said, yo, I want the joint with the slide. They was like, we don't have no more. So all the homies took the trombone. And I was pissed for a couple of weeks. But I said, you know what? Let me just come in, come in with a positive attitude. I played it. I loved it. And I started becoming competitive with myself. So my first song ever was Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah. And then Hot Cross Buns. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I said, yo, I need to play something else. So there was this internal competition always constantly learn how to play a new song and then within a couple months um i was second chair never got first chair because this dude teddy brubaker was so <laughs> bad on the horn it was my it was my brother my it was a caucasian brother yeah, he was a brother yeah, yeah. played like a brother boy <laughs> that boy played circles around me i never an all state band, all city band, never got first chair. And I think that's the best thing that happened because being number two and trying your best to be number one and never getting it still kept me hungry. So, Mike, I like the part about being prepared, right? The quote was pretty amazing, which we'll use that in, in our information. But I relate that to basketball because when you on stage and you, you, you know, encore leaving, you know if you're 80% good or 100% good because the crowd is cheering, right? They want Encore to come back. In basketball, see, you know this member as well. So you know, even MJ and myself, anybody else, whatever, you know, you make that shot, MJ goes down the court doing like this. He know his stuff was good, right? 
Utah, he, yeah. he, you know, so you can like shake your hand you want, but I hit seven threes in a row, so you know we hit that note. And them girls out there, the guys out there are grooving to your music. What does that feel like? Because that's like sports to me. That's like preparing for the game, but your game was on the stage. It, you know what? There's a zone that we hit where everything just clicks. I can't really explain it. Some nights it happens, some nights it don't. Um, it starts with the read. You put on the read and you get a good sound and all of a sudden the band is kicking and then all of a sudden you can feel it clicks. After that clicking happens, you can literally, just like how in your in your profession, where the basket looks like it's like three of them and it's this big, <laughs> that's what it is musically. I can just, I know I can think about what I can play and it will get accomplished. Band is kicking. I turn around, the drummer is, is, is knocking it out on the one. So it is a collective effort. But yeah, we get in that zone too where you can just feel that it's clicking. So how does it feel? It feels like being a puppet master on and, and the strings are right there because music can shift the paradigm of emotions. So now if I'm if I wanted to play something sexy, then all of a sudden, like the women would would respond. But if I wanted to groove and do some something hip hop, then the fellas would be like, oh, that's my dude. Like, <laughs> so yeah, we I when you're in that zone as a musician, you can go like this and you can move the needle and how the music, because let's face it, I play inanimate object, saxophone. So Anything that's played through it has to come from my spirit. So the horn is nothing but a translator of what I feel inside. And you get to hear, you get to hear the beauty of it melodically, harmonically, and sonically. But at the end of the day, I'm controlling the, the whole dynamic because what I feel is going through that horn. That horn is basically like it's an interpreter it's like rosetta stone it's basically you know i'm speaking the language in here that exists though goes through the horn and people hear it and they get a chance to enjoy it. welcome back on the winter circle network it's center court with ralph sampson and uh we've got mike phillips one of the great saxophone players in the world, really, just terrific. And Charles Whitfield, who's owner of Hidden Beach Records. And so, Charles, I got, I want to throw it to you to kick off the segment. How do you know you've got some – how do you know you got gold in your hand? How do you know you've got somebody good? You know what? You know it from a few ways. The way Mike said on um, – you know, one thing we would always say at Hidden Beach was emotion on tape. And when you can just hear the passion that comes out of someone like Mike before he picks up the horn – you know, it's someone special. And, you know, I've been blessed to work with some amazing artists, uh, Jill Scott, um, Brenda Russell, uh, Will Downing, Darius Rucker, but it was something about Mike um, and actually met Mike um, when he was playing in, in Wayman Tisdale's band. Uh, we met down in San Diego, California, when Mike and Wayman were playing down at a jazz festival that uh, used to be down in San Diego that the Smooth Jazz Station had. Mm -hmm. And immediately the first time I saw him play, um, as he played with Wayman, it was just like, as we were talking about being on the court, it was just that chemistry that you saw as Wayman was the band leader, 
had with each of his bandmates and just the chemistry that he and Mike had, he would just look at Mike um, with his eyes and throw a solo to him. And it's just almost kind of like that chemistry that you have when you're playing on the court, um, because truly those guys on the stage are like a team. And so you take, you know, you take your, your cue from the band leader who in that instance was Wayman, but you know, Mike's been blessed to play with some amazing musicians from Stevie Wonder, um, to Prince, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, Jill Scott, he's played with. But, you know, I remember going to see him play with Prince and just to see the education that would be happening on stage with Prince and the band. And they would do a show. I remember went to see him over in Paris when they were doing um, a residency over, over there at the O2. Prince would play, they would play three hours on stage or two and a half hours and then take probably a 45 minute break and then play the after party at another little club. (laughs) I mean, literally I left the arena, the sun was coming up and Mike said, they go lay down for a couple hours and by noon Prince had them right back at it. So now whenever I see Mike play with his own band, you see a little of the lessons and nuggets that he took from, you know, playing with Prince, playing with Stevie Wonder, um, being a part of stuff that Michael Jackson had worked on, which, you know, Mike is one of the few that could say he's been a part of, you know, three icons and, and Prince, Michael Jackson and Stevie. Um, and so when you see him playing with his own band and how it translates, you know, it's something special because, you know, it's just like being a coach or being a player. You get that respect from other musicians when they know the musicians that you played with. And I remember, um, you know, my old boss, the Hidden Beach, Steve McKeever, who signed Wayman um, to Wayman's first deal at Mojazz. When, yeah, he, right. he got the, when he got the demo from, from Wayman on Mike, um, you could tell right away he was something special. On a three-song demo, you knew he was something special. And I worked at a, funny enough, not a musician. I grew up playing basketball all through college, but worked at a record store um, in college. Grew up with the older brother, Fred, who's close friends with, with Ralph, who's the president of Hornets. And, I grew up listening to music that he played as I rode in the car with him. So whether it was jazz, whether it was Al Jarreau, Earth, Wind & Fire, Michael Franks, Steely Dan, Dan Fogelberg, Kenny Loggins, Ozzy Brothers, I could go mm-hmm. on and on. And I was literally getting an education, sitting there riding with my older brother, just hanging out, you know, okay. and was blessed to be able to translate that into a career uh, in the music business. So, so see you. So I'm going there to, to obviously a good dear friend I played with with Wayman, right? So I would go on the road with this dude. I played in Sacramento. He's not carrying his bag with his shoes in it. He's carrying his bass guitar on the road, two or three bass guitars on the road with his keyboard. Now, fortunately, fortunately in Sacramento, we won the first team that had our own plane, right? The Lakers had theirs, Sacramento had theirs, unbeknownst to us, right? But this dude would come to the game with his bass guitar in, you know, that's the first thing he pull out or in the hotel room. You don't want to get on the same floor as Wayman, right? Because he might be up in the middle of the night because that's the way he got his groove on, right? So mm-hmm. I can understand you on stage with Wayman. He's nodding his head, let's go get it, right? So how was that playing with him? Because, you know, he obviously passed away near a good friend of both of ours as well. Talk about Wayman and his music and Mike and your relationship. Um, Me and Wayman, we were, sewn to the hip because of a couple different uh, a couple musical philosophies number one both me and um, we both come from church we're yep. both 
church musicians. I played sax and in my church, he played bass. And there is something that is very different about a musician that was brought up in the church because they're very sensitive to the spirit of the music, the spirit of the response. The, there's a different technical facility that comes with being a musician from, from the church. And, it, and it's a lot of being gifted and natural ability along with being able to piece it all together. So when Wayman would do things, I would know it right away. He would just, it would be certain phrases that he would do that. I'd be like, that can only come from a church boy. And guess what? I'm one too. <laughs> so we would have these technical musicians that's around, that would be around us, and you know, you know, they were classically trained or tra- trained from a jazz conservatory, or whatever. And me and him would just look at each other and just go off in the whole church world, and they would have to follow us. Um, Wayman was one of most giving brothers who understood destiny. Because at the end of the day, um, I was happy just playing with him. He saw something bigger. He said, hey, man, you need to come out with your own record. And I was like, man, I'm happy playing with you and Stevie Wonder. I mean, I'm not really into this. So he coached me. He used to bring me down to where he was signed autographs and let me just sit there. I didn't have no record, but he would just say, look at the process because this is going to be you very soon. So it's really special when someone can see the, see something in you that you can't even see in yourself. And that's what Wayman will be forever remembered. He pushed me, he pushed me, he made me see my future even when I couldn't see it myself, but it didn't stop him from making sure that I got to the promised land of the destiny that I never knew about. Mike and yeah. Charles, when a musician is like a Michael Jordan, i.e. the fine tuning, the way you play, the way you, the way you act, what is it about you can tell from a musician that just says, like Stevie Wonder, being with Stevie Wonder or being with Prince, how exact were those guys as far as what they wanted and what they demanded? Well, you know, I never forget um, um, Prince. What he used to do is um, after every two weeks, he'll give us all yellow pieces of paper. We'd have to write down what we missed. Oh, Mike, you missed a part there. Mike, you missed a part here. Hey, man, you should have been in the live sound, man. You did this sound, man. You did that. Oh, blah, blah, blah. The choreography was off. It's so funny how we globalize the word genius. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Jackson was Cirque du Soleil before Cirque du Soleil existed. He was a genius in seeing yep. shows and making them big. Michael Jackson was the first person that popped out of the toaster. Right. <laughs> when they had that thing below the stage and they hit that button and he came out and just stood there like that. Huh. Yeah. For five minutes and the crowd went crazy. He didn't even blink. That's all. That was all premeditated because he knew how to move those strings of emotion. Stevie, um, not being able to see, but being able to see everything, feel it to the point that you can have it in words 
and seamlessly woven within melody and harmony. That's genius in itself. And Prince was a genius because he can take, he knew everything about everything, how the sound was connected to the dancing, how the dancing was connected to the lights, how the piano was connected to the bass. He knew everything about everything. And if you ain't play it right, he'll fire you and play it itself. <laughs> so mind you, one word genius, but so many globe, so many nuances. But I'll tell you one thing that stitches everybody together um, philosophically. They were driven and they didn't take any shorts and you had to have thick skin to deal with them. So the player that was really sensitive, you might as well ask for a trade because you're not playing with my <laughs> Say, trade me, trade me. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I'm the same way. If you can't play these parts, go home. Matter of fact, I, I played a prank on my band one time. Um, I told everybody, hey, man, we're going to Vegas. It's like, for real? Yeah, yeah. Um, at, we're staying at the Bellagio. The gig is paying $1,000 a person. And they're giving you a $500 gambling credit. I said, what y'all like to play? They was like, gambling credit? It was like, yeah, well, I like, I like, you know, I like Russian roulette. I like this. And one dude said, I like craps. And I said, you know what? It's so interesting that you said you like craps because that's exactly what you're doing with my music. <laughs> <laughs> you out here, you know, so the keyboard's supposed to be playing the D chord. You out here, come on, D. <laughs> like, How good is ever, that? Yo, I, don't you ever play craps with my music because if you don't know it, you're going to have to go home. Incredible. My music and the intentional and the intentional aspect of my music is not about you sitting up here blowing dice and trying to figure out what chord it is or what note it is. Charles, how do you deal with a genius? <laughs> I mean, can you feel you talk to him? How do you how do you deal with a, with a genius? Laughing. So, so see, that's, that's like a coach dealing with a prima donna. Right. You know, a you know, coach dealing coach. with Ralph. You know what? I mean, come on. But I will say, though, um, Mike is one of the hardest workers I've ever been around. And he'll tell you his first album or CD at that time, um, dating myself a little bit, but the first CD we worked on actually with Wayman, it took us, no lie, probably took us four years to make Mike. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just learning the process and learning how to make a record. But he's one of the hardest working musicians I've ever been around and doesn't, doesn't stop. Um, you know, literally, as we went to break, I have a I have a nine year old who literally was here taking piano lessons with the, with her teacher. She has lessons. She has a federation test this weekend, and so she has a lot of. And that's where I was gone when we went to break. It's it's so ironic that you know Mike's daughter, who now has graduated from college, was a voice on his first CD wow. in two thousand three. And so now it's just ironic as when this taping came up, I literally had to sit with my daughter today to help her prepare for a test. And it was like juggling back and forth, but that's what you do as a dad. But the similarities of so much of how from the first record to Mike's second record to the third, it's always been about progression with him. And so I remember when he first started coming to my brother's basketball camp and meeting the campers and, 
you know, where Ralph, I think, first met him and just seeing the progression over the years of, you know, we started a thing where, hey, let's start doing national anthems with NBA teams. First one we did was we did one with the Lakers uh, years ago, probably 2002, maybe. And probably one, still, actually. Yeah, 2001. <laughs> and we had a friend that worked at TNT at the time that ended up recording that anthem that we ended up, I ended up sending to Howard White, who's um, from Virginia, um, went, played at Maryland, um, but was vice president of Jordan brand. And he saw Mike's version of the anthem and was blown away. And from that, it ended up going to Larry Miller, who was the president at the time, ended up getting the MJ. And, and Mike, you know, was the first non-athlete signed the Jordan brand. Um, and so correlating music and sports and on the Jordan 17, I think they're up to 35 now, maybe. <laughs> but on the Jordan 17, Mike helped design the shoe because on the, on the, on the sleeve of the shoe, they wrote some notes, the greatest to ever play, and Mike put those notes on a shoe. You know, mm -hmm. so one, thinking totally out the box, you know, no Ralph with, you know, it's funny enough, we were exchanging texts over the weekend, Ralph's Puma brand, Mike was out in, at a barbershop in, yeah, you know, barber. ran Mike's Ralph's I gotta get shoe. some notes, I gotta get some notes, man, I gotta get some notes. Yeah, man. and so it's, it's just that progression of, you know, what we always try to do is extend it past just the musicianship of just playing. Mm -hmm. Mike was one of the hardest working players, but we were able to do things, you know, with the connection to MJ and the Jordan brand where, you know, Mike played national anthems when Roy Jones was a boxer and, <laughs> and Roy was tied to Jordan brand. So different ways where as a young sax player that nobody knew we were doing things to get exposure that were out the box, you know? And so I don't know too many sax players that could say they helped design a shoe. You know, and it's just those kind of things of hard work and, as Mike said, being prepared when the opportunity comes to take advantage of it. And that's what, Absolutely. you know, but it starts with having the gift. If you don't have the gift, none of it matters. Mm -hmm. And just as, you know, Ralph knows on the court, it's the same way. If you don't have that gift, you know, you got to put the hard work in. But if you don't have the gift, you know, and with Mike, he just had the gift from day one. When I met him, just was like, this guy has that gift. Mm. You can just see it. Most people, you can just feel it. You can see it. Yeah. Like you said, when he was playing with Wayman, you could just see it, connect, whatever. So, And then, see, obviously, over the years, from basketball to music, you, you had a good eye for seeing talent. So that kind of parallels in your even career today as well. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I yeah. think it, it it's about really trusting the other person. And, you know, I've seen Mike play over 100 plus times and the ironic thing is with this pandemic you know what i wouldn't do now to just see a live show <laughs> not that you took it for granted but it's just stuff that you miss you know and just you know jumping in a car riding to atlanta to see him and norman and, and wayman tisdale or or will downing doing a show just you know and that's you know hopefully real soon we can get back to hearing those live performances so, see, you've seen quite a bit of shows, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like playing the game of basketball. It, it never gets old seeing another show. It could be the same song over and over again with a different audience. What's it like? I mean, you behind the stage, in front of the stage. Tell me that experience from your perspective, because I'm sure it never gets old. And then now we don't have it. We miss it. Like, let's, let me just get one show. I don't have to get 100. Let me yeah. get one. One. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an incredible feeling. I always would like to sit the side of the stage and watch a show. 
and just look out in the crowd and see the audience's reaction to Mike on stage. Um, and then I'd also like to go out in the crowd and just sit out in the crowd and look up. You know, it's certain things I'd always do at shows, but it's like the, the most amazing thing is to see how, how the fans really appreciate great music. Right. And it's, it's one of those things, just like when you were on the court, when, you, when you're in the zone and the band's in the zone, that's why I would like to sit at the side of the stage. You can just see that band feeling each other and going back and forth. And it's, it's almost like when you play basketball and your team was just in that rhythm, it's like you knew you were going to win. You know, Absolutely. And for, and for Absolutely. those musicians, it was the same kind of way of, like Mike said, I've seen him open for people and he tell me, man, it's going to be tough for them to get on the stage after I light it up. <laughs> and once again, they don't want to do that tonight. Yeah, it's just that competitive instinct that a lot of times you get from sports. And that's why, you know, so many musicians, and I know we keep talking about Wayman, who is great, but, you know, how Wayman was able to correlate it over from music to sports. Yep. And that competitiveness of finding great musicians to play along with him like Mike and to help lift them up. And now it's, it's great to see Mike do the same for other young musicians. Absolutely. So get it out. So, you know, I, I have quite a few of the under wrap. I got a, quite a few okay. tapes uh, uh, here uh, in my, in my like possession. That. And I still have my old school. This is a CD. This ain't no, you know, <laughs> Spotify. So I still got quite a lot of these and I have a bigger stereo in the other room. So, so, it's, it's, it's the fourth quarter, either going to overtime in the game or you're going to put up the, be, the the last shot. Mike, what's the last song you would put up on the show to make everybody jump out the seat? Get, in your mind, so you're going into that. So you mentioned you, he told you that, okay, it's going to be hard for the next group to get up here because I'm going to turn this thing out. So that wow. last song that turned out, when you walk off, you know, yeah, I left y'all with something. What is what, what What song is that? It might be something you feel. It might be a different song Man. every night, but um, what's something like that? Feel like what song would you play? I would rock Can't Hide Love with Go-Go. Okay. All right. Can't Hide Love with Go-Go. Go-Go music. Yeah. Can't have that. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's rare. That's well, yeah, rare. Because, because you can't deny the song and you can't deny the beat. When you, <laughs> when you, when you cross-pollinate both of them together, it's over. Mike, Mike Phillips, Charles Whitfield with us. Uh, Mike, you've played it, I don't know how many times, a thousand times. How difficult is the national anthem to perform? I'm glad you asked that question. It is the <clears throat> easiest and most difficult song to play ever. I'm going to tell you why. It's so easy that there's a lot of real estate for you to do too much. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have the melody and the melody, it's simple, but sometimes you can get in your own way because it's that easy. So how do you split the difference between it um, being, um, for you and having your imprint on it, but also you stick into the integrity of the melody. That's right. a line that people push over a board a little bit or they stay too close to the melody, then it feels boring. So you gotta be right down the middle, put some inflection on it, but don't 
jack the melody up because you're trying to do too much. That's that's a great answer. My dad was a former musician, and he always used to. He was a bass player, uh, patriot, and he always he always used to yell at the TV before baseball games if a Roseanne bar. He would yell, "Play it, sing it like it's written." <laughs> yeah. So, well, guys, but you go back. You go back. Remember Marvin Gaye and the National Anthem. He gets a pass. You get the pass. Okay. Marvin Gaye gets a pass. Whitney Houston gets a pass. Um, And who else would be on that Mount Everest of anthems? Marvin and Whitney, definitely. I'm trying to figure out who the third one would be. Uh, The lady this year uh, at the Super Bowl was awfully good. The uh, Jasmine. Um, Jasmine. Jasmine, Yeah. I think she has. And if she's not on it, she gets an honorable mention. And the the sculptor need to be right there um, on the side, getting ready to pop, because that was amazing. Absolutely amazing. That that was a good call. Well, we we couldn't leave unless Mike (laughs) Phillips played a little something. And we've got our MC here. So, Charles. It's all yours. Please introduce this genius that we have today. <laughs> hey, so no better way in overtime to close out the show than kicking it to the amazing Mike Phillips. All right, all right, all right. I think he's got a career. I think he's gonna be somewhere, somewhere. We might we might can find a place for him, see. We might can find a place for him. That boy good. (laughs) That boy is good. I will will bring that. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Mike, so much. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. To get into sportscasting, you need experience just to get your foot in the door. I can't tell you how many times in my career somebody will ask me, how do I get into your business? How do I become a sportscaster? The first thing I ask is, what have you done? Do you have any experience? And the answer is normally nothing yet. It's because they couldn't find a program that provided the real world experience that you need to get started. So I set out to create a program designed for the next wave of sportscasting talent. And my partner was an obvious one. Full Sail University, great track record in entertainment and media, great alumni group, and the ability to evolve as the industry changes. We're offering a bachelor's degree that combines the professional expertise that my fellow sportscasters and I have built our careers on with the technologies shaping the world of sports. To succeed in this business, you have to be ready for what's next. But the core of great sportscasting I don't think will ever change. And this program brings it all together. Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation present Center Court with Ralph Sampson. Uplift, empower, educate. Welcome back to the Winter Circle Network, and it is Center Court with Ralph Sampson. And uh, Ralph, as we were talking basketball earlier, and by the way, 
God, guys were great today. They were just, it was way too much fun. Tony Bennett, as you know, very well established it, established the pillars, humility, passion, unity, servanthood, and thankfulness, his five pillars. He lived by it. He talks about it in press conferences all the time. I read a great story in Sports Illustrated about the Gonzaga program, how, how Gonzaga just got so good and recruiting worldwide and how good Mark Few is. Mark Few has like three pillars he follows, growth, process, evolution. Now, my question to you, because you've been in it, do you, as a player, would do you like having guidelines like that for the whole locker room, for the whole team? Do you like hearing things like that? Does it help you mentally? I, I think in some cases it does. So think about this, Mac. Everybody, Mark, Tony, all these coaches, right, got that from John Wooden. On my wall, the John Wooden 12 lessons for leadership. Some of those same things are in the John Wooden philosophy. Right. So that's where they got their stuff from. And they just built off what John Wooden did, maybe create their own because mm -hmm. it worked for him. I mean, championship after championship after championship. But as a player, you might get one. You might mm -hmm. understand one because you, you can put it on the wall if you want. But if you don't understand it, you know, and make a commitment to it as a player with what the belief is and the coach, then you are mistakenly, falsely trying to understand what the coach is trying to get accomplished. With How? Tony, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. With, with Tony, though, it, it's like you breathe it, live it, sleep it on a day by day basis. The little things be, be early for practice, be on time. All the fundamental things that make you a great player, you establish those rules and those pillars of success, no matter what you do, then everything else kind of falls into place. So sometimes it's good for players that need that discipline. Yeah. Uh, like Mike Krzyzewski, in, in, when he wrote the book Gold Standard, they had, uh, they didn't have rules. They had standards right. and they set standards, which were, which were really good. Have you ever been a part of a locker room that, you know, was divided and, and you could, you witnessed it and how difficult was it to go through a divided locker room that wasn't together? Well, the biggest locker room I've been in part of Mac was when I was a, a player development coach for the Phoenix Suns. Mm -hmm. You had not only divisions in the ranks of the players, you had division in ranks of the coaching staff, and you had division wow. in ranks in the management. So nobody could get on the same page, which I'll come in, you know, newbie and trying to figure out, you know, okay, I'm player development, you know, so you want me to create a player development program. So I go and do homework and research on the best player de development program in the league, which was the San Antonio Spurs. So I knew a couple guys, they are talking about their player development program. They helped me craft it a little bit. I took some of my stuff, took some of their stuff, the only gets mad at me because I go to somebody else to create a player development program. I say, look, I got to know what's what the best and I got to compete against and I make my own. So that was one thing. And then the coach wouldn't let me implement the player development program. You know, just do your own thing. You get with the players, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm there every day on the court with the players in development. And coach, I need to know what offense, which I understood, what offense you run, what you need to do, et cetera. Funny story, true story. So we got we had a guy named Marcin Gorchak, six foot eleven, Polish guy. He you know, played pretty well. He's a little soft, but he played well. And and the owner comes to me and said, Ralph, I want him to have, you know, hook shots and I want to have jump hooks, and this is the way he should shoot a jump hook. And he should run the block and he should score twenty points a night and get ten rebounds. So I had him scoring like eighteen points a night and about nine rebounds a night and two or three assists, right? With the offense that the coach was running. So I crafted or whatever. Right. 
Well, the guy was doing so well, the coach like, that's not, he shouldn't be our leading scorer. He shouldn't be doing all that. <laughs> he changed to a high pick and roll offense. So he's not getting the ball in the post anymore. Now he's shooting threes, he's pick and rolling, diving to the basket, not getting the ball. And then the owner comes in the rough. I thought, I mean, three games later, he was supposed to be out, he's doing that. No, what happened? He's not running back. I said, coach, I mean, he said, I want Mr. Owner. The coach is running a different offense. He's changed the game up. So I can't control that part. So you see that division, which is very frustrating as a player that's been successful with what he was doing and still winning some games, but also something shift because attitude shift because yeah. everybody's not on the same team. So I've seen that in a very serious way that hurts, you know, especially the professional players if you don't have that same culture in your locker room. That's why you got to love a guy like Saban or Bill Belichick who yes. put out three words, do your job. And you, you, you got you to gotta love that. Well, that's Center Court on the Winter Circle Network for this week. Ralph, it's been fun. Whoa, next week, next week, Dickie V. Dickie It'll V awesome, coming up. Baby. Dick Vitale. It's going to be fun with Mac. That's going to be too good. For Ralph Sampson, I'm Mac McDonald. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Our podcast is available on the Believe Network at BLEAV.com. Center Court is presented by the Winner's Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation. For more information, log on to SampsonFamilyFoundation.org. Uplift. Empower. Educate. Teamwork makes the dream work. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.